So thanks for inviting me. Um, I'm from the Cambridge Group for the History of Population and Social Structure, which is um, a research unit in Cambridge. It's partly in the history department, partly in the geography department. Um, the demographers among us are in the geography department, um, and so that's uh, where I'm based. So today, um, about 81% of new mothers initiate breastfeeding, according to the most recent surveys. And by three months, this has dropped to 17%. Um, breastfeeding is particularly common among older mothers, older first-time mothers, minority ethnic groups, the more educated, and those from professional and managerial classes. There's significant amounts of evidence which shows that fewer um, breastfed children uh, succumb to gastrointestinal disorders and infections, um, and there are numerous other health um, effects, health benefits of breastfeeding. We don't know quite so much about what happened in the past. There are some sources which paint a sort of um, bucolic picture of universal breastfeeding among um, peasant women and so on. Other sources suggest uh, the past was rife with wet nurses, baby farms, um, long tube feeding bottles which harboured infection, uh, sugar-soaked pacifiers uh, and so on. Um, What was, in fact, the reality? Uh, There are very few sources which will tell us more than anecdotal evidence um, about breastfeeding in the past. Um, It would be useful to know what proportion of women breastfed at various ages, how long they breastfed for, and what the social and demographic um, differentials in feeding were, um, and what the dangers were. So, and this is what uh, I'm going to try to um, explain to you today. So I'm starting off with this, um, uh, with a paper read, uh, in fact, to the uh, before the Derby Medical Society in uh, April 1905, and it was then published in the Lancet uh, a couple of months later. This was by uh, Dr. William Howarth, who was the medical officer of health for the city of Derby. Howarth explained that. He had established a sort of notification scheme in Derby um, whereby registered births were passed to the medical officer of health on a weekly basis. Deaths were traced and a 12-month history of each infant um, was created. Um, These infants were visited by uh, suitably qualified women uh, who collected information on feeding at various ages. He'd started this in, um, in 1900, and he collected, birth, he collected information on children born between November 1900 and November 1903, um, and he, this is what he based his, his paper on. Um, he collected information on nearly 10,000 births, um, at 9,189 to be precise. He didn't visit um, or make inquiries about... 523 because he felt that they might resent inquiry, although it's unsure whether they might resent inquiry because they were too well off or whether they were, um, might resent inquiry because they were too um, obstreperous in some other way and less well off. Both sorts of people often did resent inquiry. Um, he didn't visit or he didn't uh, get information about a further 323 infants who he felt feeding would be immaterial because they were premature or too weakly from birth um, uh, or had uh, congenital malformations which 
um, meant that they would have died very quickly anyway. So this paper was based on, on the remainder, the remaining 93% of infants. He showed that uh, 63% of infants were breastfed, 20% were hand-fed, and 17% received mixed feeding. And he says this was from a very early age of their existence, but he doesn't say exactly at what age he measured this. He classified these children to these three groups and then he measured their death rates. And he found that breastfed children uh, died at 70 uh, per thousand of these death, uh, of these breastfed children, or 7% of these breastfed children died before the age of one, um, whereas nearly three times as many, nearly 200 of the hand-fed children died before they were one, and an intermediate number of the, those who received mixed feeding. And he found that hand-fed children had higher mortality from all sorts of causes, not just um, diarrheal causes and so on. His lady visitors in, uh, asked questions about the sorts of food that infants were given. Um, he suggested that sweetened condensed milk was the very worst sort of food, um, along with bread, rusks, um, and so on, and that... Um, such food was very frequently contaminated from um, t uh, toilet facilities, uh, privy middens, pail closets, and so on. He suggested that maternal ignorance was um, as well a factor, and recommended that um, that although children could be, uh, although it would be, it's beneficial to school girls um, to give information to, to girls while at school on hygiene um, and maternal care, it was the best way of affecting um, good, good hygienic practices and safe motherhood was to visit new mothers in their homes as soon as possible after birth. And he had a very self-congratulatory self um, message that they did this here in, Dar in Derby and it, and it was very beneficial to the mothers and the infants. So... Howarth recommended a system of notification of births and visiting by suitably qualified lady visitors. And in fact, this is what, um, uh, in order to, to help um, safe motherhood for education, childcare and hygiene. This sort of system could also be used for monitoring, he thought, and these two um, reasons are behind the Notification of Births Act of 1907. Um, since 1837, all births had to be registered to the local registrar um, under the Civil Registration Act. But parents were given a leisurely six weeks um, to, to um, register their births. And Howarth, among other people, recognised that, of course, the, mo the first six weeks of a baby's life are the most vulnerable and that if you want to um, educate a mother in, in better management or to save a baby from improper feeding, that you needed to act before then. Um, so the 1907 uh, Notification of Births Act introduced the notification of all births to the local medical, medical officer of health within 36 hours of the birth. And this was not the parent's responsibility as the registration, but the midwife or the doctor or some other person attending the birth's responsibility. The 1907 Act was permissive, which meant that 
local authorities could choose whether or not to enact it or not, and, and the Derby did, in fact, Derbyshire did enact this, but many local authorities didn't. Um, the, it was successful, however, and the Notification of Births Act in 1918 made the Notification of Births compulsory, so all local authorities then had to establish um, this if they hadn't already done it. So this is the sort of data which most of what we know about infant feeding in the early 20th century is derived from. And these are often called uh, MOH studies, medical, medical Officer of Health Studies, because the Medical Officers of Health collected this sort of data, analysed it and published it in their own annual reports or decennial reports, or published it as Howarth did in medical journals. Um, Various people have analysed some of this data, Valerie Files, uh, in several publications, um, also Peter Atkins uh, as well. They have um, looked at these published collections of this data um, to establish what's known about infant feeding uh, in this time. Files looked at 23 English towns between 1900 and 1919, um, and also London in the same period, Peter Atkins looked at um, 95 local authorities um, and also London between 1902 and 1938. This is really useful data and it allows us to put, uh, to, to establish some bounds about infant feeding and so on, but it's not perfect. There are problems with comparability in this data. We often don't really know very much about what age feeding was measured at. We saw that in Howarth's data earlier, he didn't really tell us what age he measured data at. He measured, he measured the infant feeding at. He said just from a very early age. That's not quite the same with all of these studies, but some collect feeding for one month, some collect it for three, some for four, some for six, some for, and, and so it's very difficult to compare um, feeding when it's collected in so many different, at so many different ages. The definitions of feeding are also variable. Sometimes people count mixed feeding in with breastfeeding, sometimes in with artificial feeding. And it's often quite difficult to know whether people, whether the, the lady health visitors who are, who are questioning um, the mothers about this were using the same sort of uh, definitions. Perhaps one of the biggest problems with these is the selection bias in visiting. Many health visitor programmes concentrated on the working classes or on people who are most vulnerable. So they would visit the most vulnerable in preference to other people. And it's quite likely that people who are visited, who are considered vulnerable, had different patterns of feeding to other people. So it's very difficult to compare um, health visiting measures from health visiting programmes which might have had different focuses. Some of the data is collected from infant welfare um, drop-in centres, so where mothers would come along to have their baby weighed. Um, this, again, is self-selected women who might be uh, exhibiting particular patterns in feeding. Perhaps the biggest um, drawback is that these studies are limited to the questions asked by the original authors. The medical officers of health published the data, they tabulated them, and... Valerie Files and Peter Atkins and others have been confined to those tabulations and can't ask their own questions. So 
I've been able to use um, a similar source, so it's subject to some of the similar problems, but, um, but it allows me, because it has individual level data, it allows me to ask <coughs> my own questions um, and to um, take account of some of those problems. So this is a data set for Derbyshire. Um, coincidentally, um, the county in which Derby sits, where, um, where Howarth uh, conducted his original study. Derbyshire um, was one of the early enactors of the 1907 Notification of Health, um, Notification of Birth Act um, for most of the county, um, although this area here around Chesterfield, this is Chesterfield in the middle, uh, this area here uh, didn't enact the Notification of Births Act until 1918. Um, by uh, 1918, there were 50 health visitors employed in the county, um, and the local registrars provided notifications of death. Um, they were paid one penny for each death. Um, so, the data set that I'm using consists of um, births in the entire county of Derbyshire between 1917 and 1922, except for this area here, where the birth series starts in 1919. It also, unfortunately, doesn't include the county borough of Derby and the municipal boroughs of um, Buxton, up here, Ilkston, uh, New Mills, um, and Chesterfield, because they were administered separately and their records don't survive. It's very sad. But we do have information for um, 24 urban districts. Those are shown shaded on the map, and um, all... Um, 15 rural districts in the county. Even though we don't have the largest towns, we do have a very big spectrum of urban areas from the coaching town of Ashbourne, over here, and the, um, the, the baths, the spa baths of Matlock Bath um, in the centre of the county, somewhere in there, and, um, and the uh, lace town of Long Eaton, and the cotton town of New Mills up in the northwest. Um, and a variety of urban districts. We have a lot of mining districts, which are both urban and rural, and we have arable farming in the south and um, the high peak, which is mostly hill farming, in, um, in the northwest. So it's quite a varied district, uh, varied county. The health visitors who were employed by the county visited each infant. Um, they, it was a universal... It was aimed at being a universal um, system in Derbyshire. They tried to visit everybody, although there were some people who they couldn't reach. Um, they visited each infant um, repeatedly up until the age of about five, although some, some children were, had visiting ceased a lot earlier. The health visitors probably recorded what they found on, on index cards or in their own notebooks, and they were transferred to uh, specially printed ledgers, like this one here. This is um, for births in um, August 1918 um, in the Balpa in Rural District. And we can see that they're, they're very, very detailed. We have the name, surname of the child, the address, uh, date of birth, whether it was stillborn, sex, um, whether it was delivered by a doctor or a midwife, and the name of the birth attendant, whether the mother was working during pregnancy, and then um, lots of information about feeding and visits. So we have visits for the first, third, sixth, ninth and twelfth months, and how the child was fed 
at each of them. And the Pearl Fitters didn't just tick, they also wrote the, the precise date of the visit, so we can have very precise information about exactly when the children are fed at each age uh, of each sort of feeding. We have father's occupation, rooms in the house, um, um, the previous number of previous births and deaths in the family, and so on. We also have um, information about deaths. So these are, as I said, gathered from the um, Registrar General, uh, sorry, from the re local registrar. So we have the deaths um, will include the medically certified cause of death. So we can see some of them died very soon after birth, difficult labour, premature. Others died um, when they were quite a bit older, enteritis, bronchial pneumonia, and so on. Um, here's information about feeding. It was noted whether they were breastfed, artificially fed, or both. Um, just so the records go on for a second page, where visits in the second year, third, fourth, and fifth year were recorded. Um, also, um, information about weaning, which is in this column here, and here we have weaned about three months, weaned about 12 months, um, artificially fed from birth, and sometimes what they were fed on when they were weaned. So here, Glaxo and cow's milk, uh, cow's milk here, um, cow's milk and water, cow and gate. Um, so it mentions some of the particular things that infants might have been weaned on. We also have information about illnesses um, uh, in this column here. So influenza, um, measles, influenza again, pneumonia, uh, measles, and so on. Oh, yes, here we are. So the entire data set um, covers uh, over 50,000 births um, over a maximum of six years. And 93% um, <coughs> of these births were live-born, so... Here I'm not looking at the stillborn infants, of course, because they have no opportunity to be um, breastfed uh, or, or artificially fed, indeed. Um, almost all the children were visited at least once. A small number were deemed not to need visiting, um, and some moved away or couldn't be found. Um, and as I said before, it was meant to be a universal service. But it's important to bear in mind these variations in who actually was visited and why, uh, because that actually might have some bearing on, on the measures that we get at feeding. So here, this shows um, an analysis of hazard ratios for the risk of being visited. And basically, um, oops, sorry, the higher these bars at the top, the, the more likely a child was to be visited and the sooner that visit might have taken place. The bars down below show a lower likelihood of being visited um, or a longer time before the first visit. And we can see that children who might have been deemed vulnerable by the midwives or health visitors were visited very quickly. So children who were suffering from something called ophthalmia neonatorum, it's a condition of the eyes at birth, um, which can lead to blindness if untreated, were visited very, very quickly. They were visited um, nearly twice as quickly as uh, other infants who, or infants who didn't have that condition. Um, twins were visited pretty quickly, illegitimate infants. Uh, children to mothers who had suffered a previous infant death were also visited a bit more quickly. So these were visit children who were deemed more vulnerable. There were other 
um, factors which led to slightly less likelihood of being visited. So if a doctor was present at birth, if they were high, somebody in high social class or large houses, these are all measuring similar sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But these are taking account of each other. This is a multivariate analysis, so these are all independently um, important. There were other aspects which suggested that children living in some areas might have been more quickly visited due to supply of the supply of health visitors. So it would have been more easy for a health visitor to reach infants in urban areas and in mining areas. Some of the mining areas brought in extra health visitors um, because they felt they had an, a greater need and children in these areas were more likely uh, to be visited. So uh, we'll come back to some of these factors uh, in a minute. So what of feeding? For each child we can calculate a timeline of known feeding. So if we assume that they're breastfed up until their last breastfed op- uh, observation and artificially fed from their first artificially fed observation, um, we, can, uh, we can calculate it for each month. We can sum the children in observation at that month and calculate the percentage of those who we know are breastfed and who we know are artificially fed. This will, to some extent, um, reduce the, the amount of time that we see people mixed-fed because um, we have fewer, fewer bounded observations of, of being mixed-fed. Um, but we can see here, this is for all infants um, in observation, that about 95% um, initiated breastfeeding of all infants, and by one month, um, about... Um, 86% were, were still breastfed, uh, were, were breastfed at all, and a further 5% were mixed-fed. Um, so 86% were exclusively breastfed, and a further 5% mixed-fed. At about three months, oops, at about three months, um, 70% were exclusively breastfed, and a further 8% mixed-fed. And that dropped to 53% and 11% by six months, and then 24% and 20% at nine months. And by about a year, most people um, were, were weaned to some extent. Very few people were exclusively breastfed, which is, seems about right. This is in the middle of Valerie Files' range. Here are Valerie Files' um, estimates for exclusive breastfeeding, which range um, from 76% to 92% for the first month and uh, 52% to 87% for the, second month, uh, for the third month, and so on. So these seem very similar to, um, to other estimates. Files and um, Atkins suggested that breastfeeding was the norm among working-class women, but pointed out that it was far from universal, and that it depended on factors such as the recommendation of the delivery attendant, uh, income status, legitimacy, patterns of, of work among women, and maternal ill health. And we can look at these factors uh, in Derbyshire. So we can see that breastfeeding is um, our reference for infants. Um, illegitimate children were much less likely to have been exclusively breastfed, um, and particularly twins uh, were very like, unlikely to be exclusively breastfed, although they did receive a lot more mixed feeding twins because it was easier to mix mixed feed to twins. So illegitimate, the mothers of illegitimate children were more likely to have worked um, after, after the birth. Unfortunately, we don't have 
those women who work after the birth, we've got their working status before the birth, but we, there is some anecdotal evidence that is noted in the records that some women gave up breastfeeding because they had to return to work. We can see that children delivered by a doctor were slightly less likely to, uh, to have breastfed at any age than those delivered by a midwife only, and this is because doctors may well have recommended um, artificial feeding. Some of them made their own patent um, infant foods um, and so on. This might be highly correlated to the women in higher social classes who are also more likely to be delivered by a doctor. Those delivered by a doctor and a midwife um, are those for whom there were problems at birth. And it may be the problems, the problems at birth which, have been, um, which are linked to um, maternal ill health in the early postpartum days which might have affected the chance of establishing successful breastfeeding. First birth, interestingly, is slightly less likely to have been breastfed. This might be to do with um, a lack of confidence among first-time mothers, maybe a, a, a quick conception of the next child, which might have affected prolonged breastfeeding. It might be because first births are more likely to be illegitimate, or there might be a, a slight cohort effect. We have a very short time period, so first births might have been slightly um, later than uh, among younger women and if breastfeeding was actually going down in this period, we might see an effect there. So to try and take account of these things, that, such as the correlation between those delivered by a doctor and those in higher social classes, and the correlation between illegitimate and first-time births, we can do a multivariate analysis. And here again, we, it's the same sort of thing as before. Bars on the top indicate um, a higher risk of being artificially fed, and bars below the line indicate a lower risk of being artificially fed. So this is um, holding all factors constant. And we can see that even when we hold these, thing con these things constant, twins are um, much more likely to be artificially fed, as are Ill illegitimate births. Um, both doctor present at birth and higher social classes are, are still important in the risk of being artificially fed. Um, higher birth orders are less likely to be artificially fed, so first births are still a bit more likely to be artificially fed. One thing we haven't discussed yet, which we can see here, having an early visit, that's a visit within, the, within 14 days of birth, is associated with a lower likelihood of being artificially fed. So children, we saw earlier that children visited early were more likely to be vulnerable. They were more likely to be twins. They were more likely to be suffering from um, a health condition um, but even though twins are more likely to be artificially fed, illegitimates are more likely to be artificially fed, those who received an early visit, controlling for these things, are less likely to have been artificially fed. So it does look a bit like that, uh, does look a bit as if health visitors were able to encourage breastfeeding among some of the particularly vulnerable people. Um, just before I go on with that, I also tested for variables that and, and um, not shown here which weren't significant, such as um, living in a mining district, district or an urban rural district or the sex of the infant. These have no bearing on artificial feeding. So going back to early visits, um, it does seem that health visitors were able to encourage some women to, breast, to establish or persist in breastfeeding. 
health visitors were very strongly pro-breastfeeding. They gave out a leaflet, um, how to rear an infant during the first year of life, which said, every infant ought to be fed at the mother's breast for the following reasons. Uh, Because there is not and never can be any nourishment so good as the mother's own milk. Because artificial feeding in the first year is difficult, expensive, troublesome and dangerous. Because an enormous number of children artificially fed die before they're 12 months old of sickness and diarrhoea. And of those who live, many are feeble and unhealthy. Because it's easier and healthier for the mother to feed her child at the breast. Because the breastfed child is happy and contented. And the bottle-fed baby is cross and fretful and gives the mother no peace. So it's a little bit like a sort of, you know, Monday's child is fair of face. (laughs) Child is happy and glad and good and gay. So... Um, so they were very strongly in favour of, of breastfeeding, and it seems to have had some effect. Not all mothers, of course, were able to breastfeed. Um, and reasons given, the health visitors often annotated the records with reasons for why women, particularly who are artificially fed, particularly from quite an early age, were doing so. And this was um, perhaps connected to uh, a an application for um, applying for, uh, for a, a milk from the, from the local authority. The local authority would give out milk substitutes. Um, so the sorts of reasons that were given were mother too weak to breastfeed, mother too delicate to breastfeed, no milk. Breastfed at first, but the mother had influenza in the seventh week, the milk failed. Breast milk failed during the influenza of mother, mother tuberculosis. So we can see here that the mother's health is quite a major factor um, in the decision to give up breastfeeding. Now, it's very difficult to know really what the mother's health was because, of course, we only have these sorts of indications of the mother's health when the mother gave up breastfeeding. So we don't know about the mother's health among women who didn't give up breastfeeding or who gave up breastfeeding at a later age. However, we can see these two people who had influenza and the presence in, in 1918 in the middle of this data set of the influenza pandemic provides a really good opportunity to measure the effect of mother's ill health um, on infant feeding. So here we have um, those trajectories of breastfeeding for infants born um, August, June to August 1918. So these infants would have been about two to five months um, when we would still expect them to be predominantly breastfed um, at uh, during the time of the second and most lethal wave of the 1918-19 influenza <coughs> pandemic. In this pandemic, um, about, it's estimated that up to 90% of the population might have been affected by that, although some of them are likely to have been subclinical infections. It was also, an unusually for influenza, an epidemic which struck young adults most strongly. So it's very likely that most of these mothers will have been affected to some degree by influenza. Some of them will have, will have got it quite mildly, some of them will have suffered terribly, and a few will have died. Um, so we can see here, and we compare these infants to those born the previous year in the same months, because of course there may be um, other influences on the chances of breastfeeding, which have a seasonal effect. So we can see here that um, those who, who were born during the, or, uh, an exposed uh, during the influenza epidemic, were less likely to have been fed at any age after about the age, uh, uh, age of one month. Um, so at six months, about 10% more of the 1917 cohort were still breastfeeding, and at 
nine months, about 15% more of the 1917 cohort breastfeeding. So we can suggest that maternal ill health had quite um, a significant effect on the chance of breastfeeding. Of course, this doesn't include other influences on breastfeeding, but it is supported by the fact that nearly half the monetary value of emergency help given to flu victims in Manchester, not the same place, of course, but still indicative, between December 1918 and January 19 was in the form of dried milk, uh, Glaxo, um, uh, which is given to infants. So flu is an acute illness, um, and, and it has this sort of effect, but it's likely that chronic illnesses... Um, or poor nutrition would have had uh, an equal or perhaps even a greater effect um, on ill health. Um, we can see from, from my data set that women who had lost at least one previous child had, had shorter levels of breastfeeding, which I haven't shown here, but, um, and that I showed you earlier that mothers, the mother who had TB tuberculosis was also a reason for giving up breastfeeding, so chronic ill health and overwork is likely to have been a factor. So here's a couple of bits of testimony from um, the volume Life as We Have Known It, the, the Voices of Working Class Women, collected by um, <coughs> Margaret Llewellyn Davis um, in the early 20th century. Um, so this woman says, when I look back to that first three years of my married life, I wonder how I lived through it. I was weak and ill and could not suffer my second baby. So she's attributing her inability to breastfeed to her, um, her ill health. And she um, tells us a bit more about how little food she has, what she has to put up with, how, how, um, how she has to work hard, do shirt work, in order to keep a roof over our heads because her, um, her husband was out of work. Here's another piece of testimony. This woman said, I worked too hard to think about how we lived. When, when my second baby came, I did not, how I was, not, did not know how I was going to keep it. When the last one came, I had to do my own washing and baking before the weekend. Before three weeks, I had to go out working, washing and cleaning, and so lost my milk and began with the bottle. So again, she's attributing her um, loss of milk to her hard work and ill health. This woman didn't lose any children. She says, uh, thanks be to God, I have not lost one out of five born. But we do know that uh, uh, from many sources, including Howarth earlier on, that hand-fed infants, artificially fed infants, were much more likely to have died than um, uh, those entirely breastfed. And we can examine this with uh, the Derbyshire data. So here we have the risks of being, uh, of dying from the end of the first month of life till the end of the first year of life, so post-neonatal mortality. So we're not looking at the first month of life here. Um, when Howarth looked at his data, he established how infants were fed from a very early age and then kept them in that category. And he recognised that this would be underestimating the effect of artificial feeding because some infants might have changed to artificial feeding quite soon after he established that, that classification. And they might be better um, categorised as artificially fed infants, but they were still in the hand-fed category. Here, I've done it a different way. I've been able to use feeding as a time-varying variable. So as soon as an infant has its feeding um, changed to artificial feeding, they move from the, the breastfed category into the artificial fed category. So they can contribute some time to a breast 
as a breastfed infant and sometime as an artificially fed infant. We can see that when we look at this, so Howarth found um, about three times as high mortality for artificially fed infants as for breastfed infants. And we can see when we look at it this way that the risks increase to five and a half times um, as high mortality, even when we've controlled for all of these other risk factors. So it's a really, really important um, risk factor for death. Even when we've controlled for uh, being a twin, women who've had a previous death, being illegitimate, which are all associated with higher, higher levels of artificial feeding. What we can see as well is that we can see here that those who had an early visit, um, they were the more vulnerable children and they are more likely to have died. Um, because they are, even when we're controlling for, for twins, previous deaths and so on, because they, are, they were, health visitors were visiting according to the health status of the child, according to, um, they were identifying children who had these health conditions like ophthalmia and so on. But what's particularly interesting is this interaction here. So this, if we look at artificially fed infants, we say they're five times as likely to die, and those who received an early visit are twice as likely to die. If we multiply those together, we could suggest that children in both those categories, artificially fed and having an early visit, were about ten times more likely to die. But what this interaction shows is that that's not the case, that if you're in both of these categories, you have to multiply those together and then multiply it by that, which actually means that children who, who are artificially fed and received an early visit were actually less likely to die, slightly less likely to die than those who were just artificially fed. So that if you were in both of these categories, if you, if you were artificially fed but you received an early visit, it was actually um, beneficial to you in comparison to those categories. So health visitors were very strongly um, encouraging of, um, of breastfeeding, but they also, and they, and they enabled some women to establish breastfeeding, who might otherwise not have done, but they also enabled safer hand feeding among those who had to hand feed. And we know that the local authority also gave advice on artificial feeding, and they provided free and subsidised milk. And in uh, 1919, here we can see that the Derbyshire County Council spent um, nearly four times as much um, on milk and viral, which is an infant food, as it did on infant welfare centres. So it was really pushing it, putting its resources more into milk and infant feeding than it was into um, infant welfare centres, which is quite interesting. So, what about the sorts of risks of death? How have found that the risk of, of death was um, particularly high for gastrointestinal diseases, and the Medical Officer of Health for Derbyshire recognised um, that actually it was very hard to breastfeed, to artificially feed safely in the conditions that many women lived in. He suggested that given all possible instructions in home management, it is impossible to bring up healthy children in a house with an unpaved common yard and a privy midden. And this is because uh, it was easy for um, infections to get transferred from um, 
waste closets uh, and so on, to um, feeding bottles um, and, and milk and so on. And we can see, have a look at the risks of death from different sorts of diseases in our data set. So here, um, I've controlled for all of those other factors, but I haven't shown them. I've done a separate analysis for um, each of these causes of death and censored the infants who died of other causes um, at the time of death. Um, and I've measured feeding in two different ways, one at just at the end of the first month of life, and one using feeding as a time-varying variable, so allowing children to um, be switched between categories. Um, and this, again, is post-neonatal mortality, so from the end of the first month. And we can see um, that when we look at diarrhoea, here you see the other variables which are important. When we look at diarrhoea, infants who um, are, are artificially fed are almost seven times as likely to have died from diarrhoea when we measure it as a time-varying variable. So um, they're very, very much more likely to die of um, these sorts of diseases. Also more likely to, de to die of infectious diseases and the respiratory complications, bronchitis and pneumonia, which so often follow infectious diseases. And of course we know about the, the beneficial um, components of mother's milk in, in terms of providing immunity against some of these diseases, uh, infectious diseases. Children are particularly like, likely to die, um, artificially fed children, particularly likely, more likely to die from um, wasting diseases. And it is, of course, possible that some children might have been switched to artificial feeding because of a, what we might call today failure to thrive. So there may be some uh, sort of reverse causality here, uh, but I've shown elsewhere that that's um, I don't think that's a major factor. And this is perhaps why I've shown these, the, the feeding methods measured at two, in two different ways, so that even when you look at feeding measured at one particular time, mm -hmm. you wouldn't get that reverse causality there. Um, and we still have a very high risk of mortality uh, from wasting diseases when we do that. Um, so, so just going back to diarrhoea, um, this interaction with an early visit is particularly important for diarrheal diseases, suggesting that, that the, the information that the health visitors were giving mothers about how to feed safely and how to sterilise bottles and so on was beneficial there. So, the risk of dying is, of course, a function of, of two things. It's a function of exposure to a particular illness and case fatality, the risk of dying from that illness once you get it. So um, we can ask whether, whether these children were, were, di were more, more likely to, to get these particular illnesses, which we might think they might be more likely to get um, diarrhoea if, um, if they were hand-fed because they, the, the food they were, 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 um, were being fed was there at risk of being contaminated, um, or maybe of case fatality. So we can look at the risk of, of children having a particular illness, um, suffering from it um, in the data set. The illness data is perhaps less well recorded, less um, uniformly recorded than, than other data, so we have to take it with maybe a slight pinch of salt, but we can see um, that children who were artificially fed were much more likely to have, to have contracted, to have been recorded as having had any of these sorts of diseases, particularly gastrointestinal diseases, but also infectious diseases and respiratory diseases. These relative risks aren't as high as 
those for mortality. So we could suggest maybe that both exposure and case fatality are at play. So children are more likely to have got these diseases. Um, they're more likely to have, have been exposed to bowel complaints. They might be more likely to have suffered um, particularly from infectious diseases not to have fought them off initially, or perhaps we could suggest that hand-fed children might have been more likely to have been looked after with other children more likely to be been exposed. It's difficult to tell. But they were also more likely uh, to have been unable to fight off these diseases once they had them. So finally, we can look at um, diseases which didn't kill as well. Um, Ricketts is interesting because it's now associated with breastfed infants. Um, there's, um, of course, we know it's due to lack of vitamin D, um, and which we get mostly from sunlight. In this day and age where children are, are protected from sunlight using sun creams and so on, um, there is a thought that if you don't supplement a child's diet um, with, with vitamin D, and most infant foods are supplemented with vitamin D, if breastfed children might be more likely to get rickets, and there is um, some evidence suggesting this. In the 19th century, um, rickets was linked, um, on the contrary, to early weaning and improper diets, as well as to industrial pollution. We can see here that um, not that many children, 128 children were identified as having had rickets, um, about four per thousand one-year-olds in observation. Um, we wouldn't really expect the urban, the small towns and rural districts of Derbyshire to have suffered from industrial pollution cutting out the sunlight and we can see that actually Ricketts is slightly lower in urban areas so it, there's no urban effect. But we can see an artificial feeding effect so slightly more um, artificially fed infants uh, suffered from Ricketts uh, than um, oral infants. So the, it's an opposite to what we see today. So today we see more rickets among breastfed infants. Here we saw more rickets among artificially fed infants. John Snow, of the you know, cholera, Broad Street pump fame, suggested that um, bread adulterated with alum um, was, might be in part responsible for rickets um, among artificially fed children because the alum destroyed the sort of bone-forming benefits of wheat. Um, he didn't really do much. He didn't take this far enough to prove it um, but it's, it's an interesting observation which could be held up here. Alternatively it could be that these rachitic children who were artificially fed were also weakly in other ways and more likely to be kept indoors. So it's a conundrum that is uh, not um, solved yet. So in conclusion uh, we can see that breastfeeding um, was the norm in the early 20th century um, about 70% of women uh, or of infants were still breastfed at three months and that's in comparison today in Britain where only 17% um, are breastfed at three months. We have an opposite social gradient to the one that we had today. Today, well-off mothers, educated mothers are more likely to breastfeed and in the early 20th century uh, they were less likely to have breastfed. The, the um, medical literature, the recommendations are still the same. Um, we still strongly recommend recommended to breastfeed, but of course in the early 20th century doctors were 
um, recommending, or some doctors are recommending artificial feeding, whereas today they're not. Um, but they also, health visitors in the early 20th century also supported safe hand feeding and I think had some effects in encouraging that. There were, of course, higher risks of illness and death from a variety of causes for artificially fed children. Something we can't tell from this data, of course, is the psychological and attachment effects of breastfeeding, which um, are talked about today. But we could go back to that um, leaflet that the health visitors distributed, um, suggesting that the breastfed baby was happy and contented, and suggest that maybe they thought that this was an additional benefit. Thank you.